words that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning are found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25, state this, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Please join with me in prayer as we begin this passage. Lord, I feel compelled to just acknowledge before You that we have not honored You as we should, even as a church body. We have not revered You as You deserve, and we certainly have not valued congregational worship as we should. Lord, my, my desire this morning would be that You would give us clarity and understanding your design uh, for congregational worship, you continue to deepen our convictions that we might have wisdom to know how to navigate uh, through the challenges that are facing us as a congregation and even as individuals and families. Lord, that you would give us even unity, that we'd be one heart and one mind, not just with one another, but with you. Lord Spirit, we know that the, the greatest hindrance to, to unity is our own individual selfishness and pride. We pray that you would expose that in each one of us, in each one of our hearts, and that you would clarify to us what your will is, as revealed in your word and also by plain reason and in, the, in our current circumstances. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was planning on uh, preaching a, a Thanksgiving message uh, in, in light of uh, that holiday coming up later on this week. But uh, over, since, since the beginning of the COVID crisis, I've felt a, an increasing pressure to really refine uh, biblical conviction in regard to um, public worship and, and wrestling with what is God's will for us to gather together um, in the, and balancing that with uh, wanting to submit to governing authorities. Uh, this week, our governors required that church services not exceed 25 people or else uh, we could be fined uh, up to $1,000 or so, as well as 30 days in jail. And people in our church have been asked, even by their employers, to sign a liability agreement Uh, that they would not attend any gathering of people beyond 25 people, including worship services. Just this week, I was asked to sign a liability uh, waiver from our landlord saying that we will comply with all governmental restrictions, whether that's what is current or what might continue to be imposed, which I was unwilling to. To do, And as you know, just a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the importance of submitting 
even to unreasonable authorities. And again, that word unreasonable in First Peter 2 refers to uh, corrupt, twisted, um, perverted individuals. And so if we need to submit to even unreasonable authorities, why are we still meeting? I think that, that question needs to be answered. And not just with a, an email or um, even an essay, but a, but a clear presentation of the Word of God. And so what I want to do this morning is really present to you uh, the doctrine of the church. Uh, it's a, it's, it'll be very basic, but I think in understanding God's design for the church, it actually answers for us um, why it's important for us to continue to gather together, even in the midst of the COVID-19 outbreak. And I think it's worth asking this question, how do we balance the tension between the command to submit to governing authorities and other commands in Scripture? And that really is that really is the question that we're wrestling with, because we want to obey God, whatever God reveals in his word. And we know he's revealed this command in first in Hebrews 10, but he's also told us to submit to governing authorities. How do we navigate those two commands? Well, I think the key is recognizing that in Hebrews 13 and first Peter 2, it says that, that the governing authorities are his servants. That's what it says, particularly in uh, Romans 13. That is, they are under him. God's command matters first and foremost. His servants' commands do not trump God's commands. So he might have placed husbands as authorities over the home, but what a husband says does not trump what God's word says. And we just need to recognize that. Servants' instructions do not override the master's instructions. For instance, when parents go on a date and they leave their children to a babysitter, they expect their children to obey the instructions of the babysitter. But what happens when the babysitter tells the children to do something, to disregard a regular pattern and command that the parents have set up. Let's say they need to use the restroom before they go to bed in order to avoid accidents. And the babysitter says, no, you cannot follow your parents' instructions. You need to follow my instructions. I'm in charge. Well, I think in that instance, um, the children should follow their parents' explicit instructions. Now, obviously, if the house is burning down, the children need to immediately listen and obey. But if the sitter is just asserting her authority, I think it's a different issue. And so with regard to ceasing or altering worship service in our curtain circumstances, Hebrews 13.25 gives a command that I think needs to be heavily weighed in light of what the governor has instructed. And, but at the same time, we need to recognize in cases of extreme emergency, it is warranted, I think, to suspend worship services. The question is, is the governor's response to COVID-19 a house burning down or is it a governor or the sitter asserting her authority? Now, different people are going to, I think it's somewhere in between. Some people are going to be more certain that it's governor asserting their authority. Others are going to be more in line with the house is burning down. And I think that has to do with whatever, where we get our information and other things. And I'm actually not going to argue today that it's one or the other. I, I think 
the Bible would direct us in a different path. Regardless, where you land on this really depends on two things. The trustworthiness of the government as to the level of emergency. And secondly, the weightiness of the biblical command to gather together. This whole conversation really boils down to those two points. How trustworthy is the governor in all these restrictions of the current crisis? And how weighty is this command given in Scripture? I'm not going to deal with the first at all. You can wrestle through that. And I imagine that where most of us would disagree is in that realm. At the same time, I think it's very important that we understand what God has said in his word. And we understand how important it is that we continue to gather together as believers. Because that is what God has revealed. And it's my assumption that most of the churches that are choosing to shut down are doing so not because they trust the government. I think, in fact, actually why churches are easily giving in to these restrictions is because they don't understand the weightiness of the importance of gathered worship weekly. And I would say we ourselves as a church body really do not get it. And I would point to instances of how easy it is for us to choose not to come whether or not there is an outbreak. And how many of us show up to church even 10, 15, 20 minutes late. I think we also need to understand the weight of gathered worship. Now again, just because one can do something doesn't necessarily mean that they should. Just because we can shut down the service, I think there's freedom to do so in the Scripture in emergent circumstances. But that doesn't necessarily mean we should. We need to weigh what the Bible says. We need to use Scripture as well as plain reason. I get that phrase from Martin Luther when he stood before the Diet of Worms and he said, unless I can be convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I will not agree and recant what I've written. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And I think we should follow in like manner. And so in order to consider how we should respond, I think it's important to weigh the importance of what the Bible says about gathered worship. And so I'm going to offer eight clear reasons from Scripture that emphasize its great importance. So these are reasons why Christians should continue to meet together. First of all, we're given a clear command. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's helpful to recognize that some of the recipients of this letter that is written by the author of Hebrews were under severe persecution. He's not writing to Americans under a COVID-19 crisis. He's writing to people who were losing their homes, who were uh, getting beaten, maybe even killed. The Hebrews were a persecuted people. And he says to these people, do not abstain from Christian assemblies. They're exhorted to not let down their attendance upon these meetings or even abandon them. And instead, they're continued to exhort one another 
So this is a command that's given to the church. It's not just to a pastor or an elder. But no, continue to exhort one another of the need to continue to gather together to worship God. In view of the, the approach, approaching time of the Lord's return. And I think this command in Hebrews really should be decisive enough for us on why we should not forsake the gathering ourselves together. It's an explicit command. But the Bible even gives more that I think we should consider. Not only is there a clear command, there's a clear meaning of the word church. The English word church uh, comes from the Greek word kurkirion, uh, same thing as the Scottish word kirk and the German word kirka. Uh, the, the Greek word means belonging to the Lord. So church is a gathering of those who belong to the Lord. Actually, the word congregation, the English word congregation, means with the flock or the flock together. Sorry, together flock. The flock. This is a, this is a biblical word. The, the flock is gathered together to worship. That's what a congregation is. Now, the New Testament word for church in the Bible is ecclesia. You're familiar with that. It literally means to call out those who have been called out. Now, the, the idea there is not that, the, that those who are gather are those who have been called out from the world, world, nor does it refer primarily to our calling as in those who have been born again. Although there may be some inference there. But really, the primary meaning of ecclesia is those who are called to an assembly. And we know that because this word ecclesia is used prior to the New Testament to speak to a gathering of people. It, it, it speaks, in fact, in um, Acts 19.30, uh, it's used to refer to an unruly mob. And this is how it was used by, uh, the, in the general population. An ecclesia were, could be those who were gathered to watch uh, a gladiator fight could be a crowd assembled um, at a marketplace. So it just means a coming together of people in a physical gathering, a physical location. That's what it means. But this is also the term that Jesus first used for the church in Matthew 16, 18. When he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is the this is the word that that Christ chose to use to describe his followers being gathered together. The expectation, even from Christ at the very outset, is you will be together. It was also later used as the term to describe the followers of Christ in the book of Acts. Specific local gatherings are called churches. Right. You have Paul who writes letters to the church of Ephesus, the church of Corinth. He doesn't write letters to um, the universal church, although it clearly has implication in the universal church. We still read them today and it has that authority. But he writes to specific churches, a local body of believers. So the fundamental meaning of the word church implies that it is a group of people who regularly gather together. That's the implication of the very meaning of the word itself. In other words, a church really isn't a church if it doesn't gather together. It's 
a social media club or something. If it's not that. There's also a clear implication. A clear implication given in the scriptures. Many of the commands given in the New Testament, as you know, cannot be fulfilled unless we gather together. I mean, just think of the multitude of one another's. Serve one another, love one another, uh, rebuke one another, confront one another. You, you can't serve another person unless you're with them. We looked at uh, just a few weeks ago, Romans 12, where we're commanded to live a life of worship. Make yourselves a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual act of worship, right? Well, right after he says, in light of the gospel, in light of everything that Christ has done for you in dying on the cross and saving you from your bondage to sin, this is how you should live. Live a life of wholehearted devotion. After he says that in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he then gives a list of commands to a local congregation of how they need to live out that act of worship, that life of worship amongst one another. In other words, you can't obey Romans 12 unless you're with one another. So if you're not gathered together, massive, it's not just Hebrews 10 that's being disobeyed. It's massive other commands that are being disregarded. And I should just also say that if we're not seeking to do this, when we gather together, we're still guilty. So coming together as a church is not simply to sing. It's not simply to pray. It's not simply to hear the word of God. It is to love one another, to serve one another, to care for one another. That's why we have community groups and discipleship groups, because we're limited in how much time we have here. We don't need to be, but I think we follow too much of our culture. And so we try to extend opportunities to fulfill these commands throughout the week. And even so, we fail to do this. And attendance is poor. So we need, we need to take the commands of Christ seriously. When we come, gather together for worship, it's not primarily about an event. And it's certainly not about what each, each of ourselves. It's about caring for one another and exalting Christ. We, we need to be together because we need one another. And not just one singular person. I suppose if one person was just up preaching then maybe watching online would be sufficient. But that's one person, maybe a handful of people, maybe if, you, if you hear the music team singing, maybe a handful of people on that day are using their gifts. But what about the rest of the body? In not meeting together, we're slowly starving one another spiritually. I'm getting ahead of myself. Other commands... Uh, the metaphor of the body uh, implies togetherness. Church discipline would be diff difficult if the church didn't gather together. 1 Corinthians 5, it says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, right, a clear assumption that's happening regularly. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is not those inside the church that you're to judge. No, is it not those inside the church you're to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, the assumption is there is a, such a thing as among. Paul's instruction 
implies a regularly identified gathering. Okay, so there's a clear implication given in the commands of Scripture that we meet regularly together. Fourthly, there's a clear history, a pattern established from the beginning of the church throughout church history up until the present time. As you know, as we just read, the church had its beginning at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church as they were gathered together. It says that. Acts 2.1. They were all together in one place. Afterwards, the church continued together. At the end of Acts 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Shortly after that, the governing authorities threatened James and John to stop preaching. The church gathered then to pray. And it said, and when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, they were together. I'm going to emphasize this point so it just gets driven into our mind. The church is a gathering together. In Acts 15.30, after the, the apostles met with the council of Jerusalem, they returned to the church at on Antioch, and it says this. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. In Troas, in Acts 20, verse 7, Paul traveled to Troas. And this is when he preaches and Eutychus falls from the building and dies and is resurrected. It says, when they were sent off, they went, sorry, on the first day of the week, when they would gather together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Mark Dever summarizes this point in his book on the church. While the New Testament refers to a plural number of leaders... Elders in a singular congregation, as it does in Acts 20, never does it refer to multiple meetings as constituting a local church. That's significant. You have multiple elders in a church, but never once is a church described as a congregation of multiple meetings. It's always a singular meeting. That's significant. Christians have always met together weekly, even in the scriptures as well. And we know this because the fourth commandment established the pattern. The fourth commandment is the Sabbath, once a week. And it established that pattern that continued on the Lord's Day in Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Actually, in that verse it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so the collections can be made when I come. The implication is they met the first day of the week, Sunday, to worship. Same thing in Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. You see the pattern. First day of the week, they gathered together throughout every church throughout the world. This is the normal pattern. And so if we're going to break this normal pattern from history, we better have really good reason to do so. The Didache was an early church document that exhorted Christians on the Lord's Day, assemble. It's kind of like a charter. 
it, it didn't have the weight of the scripture, but it was kind of a, a guiding document for all the, the churches to follow. And the expectation was they would symbol once a week. A non-Christian Roman official named Pliny noted that Christians gathered regularly before daybreak on an appointed day. Justin Martyr in the second century described a common assembly as on the first day of each week, Christians came together to read scripture and to pray and to collect an offering. Hippolytus, who was a church father in the third century, makes a, I think he was a church father. I may need to correct that. But he makes a statement assuming that God's people assembled each Lord's Day. So, again, this has been the pattern for about 2,000 years. Then in the 20th century, because the advent of technology, we feel the freedom to break it. I'm not sure we should. The most fundamental duty Christians have in relation to the congregation is the duty to attend regularly to the meetings of the congregation. That's Mark Dever in his book on the church. The most fundamental duty that Christians have. Do you believe that? This is like the basic command Christians are given. The basic fundamental command is to gather regularly for worship. We better have really good reason not to. And maybe there is good reason. I'm not saying there's not. But we need to have very clear evidence that that is what we should be doing or not doing. A clear identity. There's also a clear identity for the church. When a person is born again, they immediately become part of the universal church, but they're also expected to then join a local church. And so this gets into membership, the importance of being a member of a local body that gathers regularly. Alan Stibbs, in his book, God's Church, says any idea of enjoying salvation or being a Christian in isolation is foreign to the New Testament writings. The necessity of membership in the local church is never questioned. It is taken for granted. Had we asked the believers of the apostolic period whether it was essential to join a church, they would not have known what we were talking about. Every believer became a member of a church. Brothers and sisters, that is not true in the 21st century. People have many reasons for not wanting to join a church. Many people aren't even a part of a regular church. Well, if that's the case, what's the big deal if they don't show up for a gathered worship? I mean, my point is that our understanding of the church is so low that when the government comes out with a restriction that says don't gather, it's almost like a no-brainer for most of the world to say, well, okay, why not? I mean, it's not that big of a deal anyway. I think the problem lies primarily with the church having such a low view of gathered worship that we deserve to be required to sacrifice in order to continue to continue to worship. I believe the Lord is disciplining his church. And I think we're included in that. So part of why we believe that there should be a membership process is there's strong evidence in the early church that they had roles. Now, this may have started spontaneously, but the church had some sort of roles because in Acts 1.15, it notes that 120 people were gathered. Acts 2.41, it notes that 3,000 people were baptized. In Acts 4.4, 4, 
5,000 believed. So they knew how many people of themselves they were. They must have had some sort of role. More than that, in 1 Timothy 5.9, we know there were special roles kept because um, for a widow to get financial support from the church, she had to be uh, on these lists. Moreover, churches were expected to choose elders and deacons, which assumes some sort of membership role. In Acts 6.2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, Is it not right that we should give up the word of God to serve tables? Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The point is, there was some, they knew who was among them. Those who were part of the church were regularly identified. Church discipline assumes some sort of role. Right? 1 Corinthians 5.13 But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Right? If if it wasn't obvious, if this person, this, this disobedient Christian, if it wasn't obvious that he was already part of the church, what good would church discipline do? Even the general public knew who the members were. Acts 5.13 None of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. But I think it does beg this question. Is if, if there's not an explicit process given in Scripture for church membership, is it necessary for churches today to have an explicit, formalized process of membership? Well, no, there, there is no direct command to do so, but I do think it's wise. And that's why we do so in our church. Because if there's no formal process, at what point does a person become a member? Three months? A year? Like, how do you know this person is committed or not committed? How do you know if they're not just checking out and trying to get a sense of what this church believes if they want to commit? Or if they are totally committed? How do you know? So it it, it eliminates vagueness. And that's really, I think, the, the main issue. With so many people coming and going in our culture, either for church shopping or moving, it's difficult to know who's in and who's out. And honestly, it's really difficult to shepherd. Because if you don't know how committed a person is to being shepherded, it's hard to know what your role is. My, my role is in caring for people. Membership communicates, I trust you. I want to be shepherded. And it tells everybody else in the church, I want to serve you. I want to love you. I trust you. And I need you to serve me. It lets everybody know Hey, we're all in this together, right? And that's even what's communicated by taking the Lord's table together. Now, I think anybody who's part of the local, the the universal church should be able to participate in the Lord's table. But really what's being communicated is we're all on the same page. We're united in Christ and we're in this together, even if it costs us our lives. Because we seek to follow Christ. I should say... 90% of my counseling that I do goes to non-members. Now, I say that for two reasons. One, even if you're not a member of this church, you're going to be cared for. You're going to be shepherded. You're going to be exhorted. You're going to be loved. You're not going to be neglected just because you're not a member. But second of all, 
Do you see the oddity in that? That those who are not committed to the church are getting more individual counseling time than the rest of the members. And that could be a, a chicken or the egg sort of thing. If they were more committed to the body, maybe they would receive the blessings of being a part of the body instead of just one individual member's attention. But they would have the whole body praying for them and loving them, encouraging, exhorting them rather than just a portion, 1% of the body. So to use an imperfect analogy, it's like living together without ever getting married. Right? The Bible never tells us what a wedding ceremony needs to look like. At all. We have no indication what what any sort of wedding ceremony looks like. But that doesn't mean there wasn't such a thing as marriage. Right? Because if there wasn't such a thing as marriage, if there wasn't an identified ceremony, what's the difference between fornication and a godly union? Just because an explicit process isn't laid out doesn't mean that there wasn't one. In fact, it implies that there was one. And so I think it's up to each individual church to decide what's the best way of communicating to one another when a person is a part of a local body. So that's why we have uh, a church membership. There's a clear identity for who's a part of a church. There's also clear leadership. And, and we can't overemphasize this. Christ is the head of the church. Not the media. Not the government. Not the pastor. Christ is the head of the church. He rules his church through his word. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and given for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be fully equipped and ready for every good work. Christ Christ speaks to His body through His Word. And therefore, the primary responsibility of elders and pastors is to rightly communicate what God says in His Word so that His body might understand. And this is why the preaching of the Word of God is the dominant aspect of a worship service and why the preaching of the whole council is necessary. What I mean by the whole council is all of Scripture, not just themes. Right? I know I've been teaching a lot on themes, but our regular practice is verse-by-verse verse exposition of the Bible so that we can see what not just... We, we don't just talk about what we want to talk about. We actually are in a place to fully understand and recognize everything that God has written to the church. Paul says in Acts twenty twenty six, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He tells Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit that was entrusted like a treasure was the Word of God, was sound doctrine. Timothy's job as an elder primarily is to guard that, make sure it's rightly interpreted and understood by the church. Speaking of the responsibility of elders... Paul tells Titus that elders should hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine 
and also rebuke those who contradict it. If, if the church is not led through Christ's word, it will be led by the culture or the media or whoever the loud voice is out there. If it's not led by the word, it's going to be led by the world. And we know who the leader of this world is. We know who the prince of the power of the air is. That is where the church will go if the preaching of the word of God is not central. It may take 50 years. It may take two. But that's where it's going. So this is this is important. Jesus also established under shepherds to serve the church under him. And the Bible really gives two key qualifications for pastors and elders. A godly life that conforms to what the Word of God says, so they're obedient, and they rightly handle the Word of God. They teach accurately, and they have a godly life. They seek to obey the Word of God. Paul tells Timothy, keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. He tells Timothy, be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Peter says, tells the elders to be examples to the flock. You see what's being emphasized. Make sure you teach rightly, accurately, communicating God's word, but also that you live it out yourself. Be an example. Now, that's really the, that's, that's really the basic summary of what the qualifications of an elder are. And I can't overemphasize this enough either. What's important is not an elder's skill in teaching or leadership as much as their faithfulness to rightly interpret the word of God and obey it. An illustration Right? Any chef can serve junk food, right? boxed junk food, even candy, to preschool kids. And the preschool kids are going to love him. They're going to think he's the greatest chef ever. Right? Anybody can do that. But as parents, we want our kids to have meals that are nutritious, that actually help us grow, that, that are substantial. Right? That takes effort to make it tastes good, but what you care first and foremost with, your, with what your kids eat is not that it tastes good, but it's nutritious. And that's what we should care about as a church too. That it's, that it's right, that it's nutritious, it's, it's an accurate understanding of the Word of God. How it tastes matters, but, it should, but not as much as not as much as um, its substance. Substance is far more important than spice. Again, elders and pastors, they're like Christ's lieutenants. Right? They pass along the general orders given by God to the congregation. And it's, it's the leader's responsibility to interpret those orders and instruct the church. The church should not look to the culture or the media or the government. They need to look to Christ's instruction. And so ma- elders have a massive responsibility. That's why James says in James 3.1... Um, let not many of you become teachers, my beloved brethren, for you will incur a stricter judgment. 
You better make sure that what you're saying is what I have said. Or else you will have to give an account. And that's what he says in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And this is why these are the two qualifications for elders and pastors. Live out what you preach and make sure what you preach is what God has said. So finally, seven, actually not finally, penultimately, there's a clear aim of the church. What is the aim of the church? As you know, it's that we might all grow into Christ-likeness. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Actually, it's right there on the screen behind you. As he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists to some pastors and teachers, speaking of the building of the church, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, that each individual will become Christ-like and the church will become Christ-like as a whole. Now note this in verse 14. As a result, as we're instructed this way, as we gather together and are growing We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful seeming. Does that sound familiar? Being tossed about because there's so much going on right now in the culture. What do we do? Brothers and sisters, one thing is necessary. Worship God. Obey God. If you've been clearly instructed, you're not going to be tossed about right and left till you're nauseous. You'll have clear conviction and peace. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I mean, could he not be more emphatic? Every single member meeting together to help every single member grow to Christ's likeness, not showing up for a concert, not showing up for an inspirational talk, but helping one another grow in Christ's likeness and submit to His Word. And it will be hard. That's why we need one another. Maybe somebody loses a job because they're seeking to be faithful, and so we need to provide means. Maybe somebody is, is a part of a horrible family situation, and they're just constantly discouraged and need prayer and just a, a listening ear. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. And I'll tell you, as a pastor of this church, there is a lot of hurting people. But because we're so individualistic, so concerned about all the things that our family has going on, we're so busy with our own work, most of us have no clue about what's going on in one another's life. And it's our own self-focus that's the problem. That's why I just, 
I, it just drives me nuts. I want to tell you guys, you've got to meet this person and this person and this person because they've been there and they got wisdom. They could encourage you. But we're, we're just so slow to cross the aisle because we don't speak fluent Spanish or whatever other reason. Brothers and sisters, we need one another desperately or we'll be tossed to and fro like leaves in the wind. And so this design and aim assumes the need for gathering together. Right? It's the gathering together that prevents Satan from working his mischief. So this is a very big deal. I may be wrong, but I am highly confident that what's going on in our culture doesn't just come from the government or from the media. I think there's a much more rancid power behind it. Because if you can get the church to shut down, Christians are going to be leaves in the wind. Easy prey. So this is a big deal. The aim of the church is spiritual growth towards Christ-likeness, towards maturity, true worship. And as we individually grow and as we individually minister to one another, the church as a whole grows. That growth becomes exponential. It's a beautiful picture. That's why it's important that we all serve, not just one of us or five of us, ten of us, all of us serving. We need one another. Eighthly, a clear example. I think we can be so thankful that God in Scripture has given us a multitude of examples for how to live in challenging situations. You know, when, there's, when there seems to be a conflict between two different commands from God, submitting to government, governments, for instance, and other commands of Scripture, gathering together. I think Daniel is immensely helpful because he was instructed by an absolute decree of the emperor of the world, more or less at that time, Darius, emperor of Persia. He was given a decree that said, you will not pray to any other god or worship any other god. Well, Daniel, when he heard that decree, not only refused to cease praying, he could have prayed in his heart, but he went as he always did, as he regularly did, three times a day, in front of the window, and prayed. He was making a statement. I care more about the honor of God than I care about the consequence of being fed to lions. And God honored him for that. We know that because he sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. Now, Daniel wasn't commanded anywhere to pray three times a day. He could have easily said, oh, there's no command that he's to follow. I'll just pray in my heart. I'll still honor the God. No, there was much more at stake than just being silent and submissive. The honor of God was at stake. As he honored God, God honored him. God showed 
his love for Daniel again by rescuing him. Now one could say, but Daniel, Daniel is only risking himself. He's not, he's not risking the deaths of many people. He was just risking his own life. What right do we have to possibly risk somebody getting a highly contagious disease that's similar to the flu? I think that's fair enough. That's a fair enough question. And I've thought about it. And I've had to weigh that. But I don't think it would have made a difference to Daniel whether 5,000 people were killed or just himself. Because Daniel didn't make the decision based upon the consequences. He made the decision based upon wanting to honor his God. His decision was based on wanting to honor God. And God's honor always trumps one or 1,000 people's well-being. And that may be very troubling for you to hear that. But I think that the Bible makes that clear. Um, for instance, in First Chronicles 21, it's worth reading. God was dishonored by David. Because David chose to make a census, counting all the people in Israel. Most pro- I, don't, I don't know all the motives behind David, but it was probably pride. God was dishonored and he gave David three choices. And the concept of what David could how David could be punished. David chose pestilence. And 7,000 people died because David took a census. Well, why would God punish 7,000 people? Because God's name was dishonored by the king. And that's not to say God doesn't value life. He does. He gives us life. He sustains us life. In fact, God's the one who chooses whether we get sick or whether we die or when we die. It's all his choice. Brothers and sisters, we have to be convinced. We have to be convinced or we will cave. We have to be convinced that God's honor matters more than our lives, than everybody in this church's life, than everybody in this world's life. God's honor supersedes all. Because he's God. Right after Nadab and Abihu played fast and loose with the Lord's instructions, the Lord made this very clear. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. That's why he killed Aaron's sons. Because they offered up loose, strange fire. This is a very big deal to God. It's not just tradition. It's not just Christmas. This is worship of the creator of the universe. The only one who deserves all glory and honor and power. This is not mere habit. You guys are familiar with the five solas of the Reformation for which people died. We talk about the five solas all the time. Especially the fifth one, soli deo gloria. What does that mean? To the glory of God alone. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's glory matters more than any consequence? I don't think most of the church does. 
We just talk that way. I think most of the church just assume, sorry, I'm getting upset. I'm just so grieved. I'm not angry at you guys. I'm just so grieved at how tritely we treat worship. I love you guys. That's why. And I love our Lord. And I know, I believe you agree with me. Well, I should conclude with this example provided by the father of John Payton, who, as you know, became a missionary to cannibals. People said, don't go to the cannibals, they'll eat you. You don't want to die being eaten by cannibals. Payton said, you know, and if I, I'd rather, if I'm going to be resurrected just like you, it doesn't matter if I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And you've got to wonder, good night, where does such courage where does such boldness come from? Well, I think in part it came from his dad. His father was a poor, I think he was a farmer. He was a peasant. And their family didn't own a carriage or a horse. And so for worship, they were required to travel uh, four miles to the church that they attended. In fact, they were required to walk everywhere they went. And there was no public transportation in those days. Um, because they didn't have a carriage, often it would just be John Payton's father and a few of the children. His mother often wasn't able to attend unless they could get somebody who could had a carriage and could take her to church. And so even what his father and kids would do is they would write all the notes they could in the sermon so that when they got home, they would actually participate and re-articulate um, everything that the pastor had shared so that their mother and brothers and sisters could enjoy what was missed in worship. He said Dumfries was four miles fully from Thurtherwald home. That's where they live, Thurtherwald. But the tradition is that during all these 40 years... My father was only thrice, three times, prevented from attending the worship of God. Once by snow, so deep that he was baffled and had to return. Secondly, once by ice on the road, so dangerous that he was forced to crawl back up the Rukon Bray on his hands and knees after having descended so far with many falls. Right? So two times he tried, he just got thwarted. One other time... This is relevant. By a terrible outbreak of cholera at Dumfries. That's where the church was. All intercourse between the tw town and the surrounding villages during that awful visitation was publicly prohibited. And the farmers and villages, suspecting that no cholera would make my father stay at home on Sabbath, sent a deputation to my mother on Saturday evening and urged her to restrain his devotions for once. Now, they weren't worried about him spreading cholera. They were worried about him getting cholera. Now, cholera, I'm informed, isn't spread by like COVID is. It's bad water, I believe. But this is the point. The grit and determination of John Payton, who faced death nearly every day at the hands of cannibals, 
didn't come from nowhere. And if we want to raise up courageous and committed young men and young women, it is imperative that we live by example. And so at the risk of a heavy fine and possibly jail time, I am willing to keep gathering together because it is a fundamental expression of worship to the one true God. It is neither pride nor popularity or personality that makes me not comply, but a fear of the Lord and a desire not to dishonor him. Please pray with me. Father, we have to just again confess we have not honored you as we should. And I'll be the first to admit it, Lord. What a shameful thing when the pastor has to admit such a thing. Lord, grace and truth, Bible Church has not honored you as we should in regard to our commitment to gathering together regularly. Lord, we often show more commitment to work, even to entertainment, and so many other trivial things than we show to the, the worship that you deserve. But God, we don't want to be proud. We don't want to be foolish. We want to be wise, and we want to honor you. And so, give us wisdom. Lord, and if there's anything that I've said that's a miss or an error, I pray that it, you would... Help us to see that. Our goal is not to necessarily agree, but that we would agree with what your word says and what your will is. So I pray that you would give us unity as a church and help us to really have wisdom that we might know how to answer outsiders. So they would come to understand what what being a Christian really is. Lord, we do hope that this is an opportunity for the gospel to be shared. The people would realize what it means to be a slave of Christ. What it looks like to be regenerated, to no longer live for self, but wholly and completely to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, regardless of the cost. Lord, we've sung many times that we desire to take up our cross and follow you. That you are our all in all. Give us strength to live out what we say and what we sing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.